Friends, hallelujah. Christ is risen. Easter is about two things. On the one hand, it's first about the resurrection of a man named Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. But secondly, it's about the church's faith in that resurrection. But what does it mean to have faith in the resurrection of Jesus? And more importantly, is it possible for a thinking 21st century person to really believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Our culture has an idea of what faith is, and I think it's entirely wrong. When I was a kid, my favorite children's book, in fact, it still remains my favorite, one of my favorites is Chris Van Osburgh's book, The Polar Express. It's a lovely story about a magic train that comes on the night before Christmas to whisk children away to the North Pole to meet Santa Claus. The only catch is that you have to be a true believer for the train to come to your house. And the way you know if you truly believe is if you can hear a little bell ringing. I remember growing up and wanting desperately to believe that the train would come for me. And even as I got older, I wanted to be able to hear the bell. I remember being about 20 years old and ringing the bell, believe, believe. And you see why it is, in fact, a miracle that I am married. <laughs> I'd like to suggest that that's a picture of what many people in our culture think faith, the Christian faith, is about. See, as we grow up, we, grow, we wise up. And we are smart people. We know things about the world. And the Easter story is like the story of the Polar Express. Maybe it seems lovely. And we want to believe it. But everybody tells us it's not for belief. And so those of us who have faith, we, just, we think that faith means some sort of blind faith. Contrary to the evidence, we sort of just say, believe. Believe and force ourselves to believe something that we otherwise wouldn't. But what if... Faith in Jesus is something else. What if faith in Easter and the claim that he's risen from the dead is something else entirely? What if, in fact, it has nothing to do with that kind of absolute blind faith? I once went ziplining for a wedding I was officiating in Las Vegas. And that's sort of a misleading statement. It wasn't a Cirque du Soleil wedding. I happened to be in Las Vegas where a family member of mine lives, and I was there to officiate the wedding. But before the wedding, not as a part of the ceremony, praise God, we went ziplining in the mountains outside of Las Vegas. The van came up to our hotel. We piled in. We drove out to the Sandy Mountains. We met there at the base of the mountain with the outfitters. Three dudes worked for the company. You need to know... I try to use the word dude as infrequently as possible. But these guys were dudes. For example, exclusively they go by their nicknames, Gumby, Tweeter, and Rollo. And exclusively they call you bra, not bro, bra, as in bra, can I help you with your, with your uh, harness? Hey, bra, you want another Red Bull? Bra. These dudes led us, lead us to their car. We drive up to the top of the trailhead. We load up our gear. We hike to the top of the mountain. When we get there, we see a thick steel cable hammered into our peak going across the valley to another, another mountain peak. And we were paying for the privilege of attaching our harnesses to this steel cable and launching ourselves out into thin air. We're paying for that. And we stand there on the edge and we think, oh, I don't know about this. So we asked Gumby, if he'd ever done it. And he said, brah, I've never done it. I've never seen anybody do it. Rollo says, I'm not sure anybody will even survive. And the tweeter was no help at all. 
But I gathered the group together and I said, friends, this looks dangerous, unsafe, and we're all probably going to die. But hey, YOLO, you only live once. Let's do it. Most of that story is true. There were these three dudes named Tweeter, Rollo, and Gumby. We did meet at the base of the Outfitters. We did gather in the car and drive up to the top of the trailhead and hike to the top. They do only call you bra. There was a steel cable hammered into the solid rock going straight across the valley. But before we went, the staff members went and showed us that it was possible. Before we had even signed up to go that day, we had seen the videos on the company's website showing other tourists doing it and being safe about it. And of course, before we ever strapped in the harness and held ourselves to the cable by a small steel carabiner, we'd undergone an extensive safety briefing. Do you know what it's called? To trust something when all the evidence says the opposite? Stupidity. And many people in our culture think that that's what it means to have faith in Christ, some kind of blind faith. Turn off the thinking part of your brain, turn aside from all the legitimate questions you have, and just believe, force yourself to believe. And that's why I'd suggest so many of us perhaps here today haven't been in church for a long time, because that's how we thought it meant to have faith in Christ. But I don't believe that's the case at all. Our scripture lesson this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. This is very, very ancient stuff. Early eyewitness accounts of the first resurrection, Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. May God add his richest blessings to the reading and hearing of the word today. Let's pray. Lord, on this morning of all mornings, take my words and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. And then take our hearts and light them up with the joy of the good news that he is risen indeed. This is what we ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe those 12 verses we just read together contain what I'm going to call signposts that point us towards the plausibility of the church's claim that Christ is really raised from the dead. I believe even in Luke's gospel itself, in addition to the other gospels, we're not called to have blind faith but we're called, like Thomas, to see and reason and therefore believe. And the first signpost is the presence of the women in this account. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're like a special version of literature, a religious biography. And they all agree 
that the first people to come to the empty tomb that Sunday morning, the first witnesses of the startling thing the church claims, were women, which is a striking detail. Because in first century Jerusalem, women were not considered credible witnesses in court. You know, we, we modern people, we think we're the only ones who have come to certain insights. We think we're the only people who believe that the resurrection is some sort of hoax the church has been perpetuating. From the very beginning, there were people who made that claim. You can read about it in Matthew's gospel. And from the very beginning, the church has insisted that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. Sometimes people say, well, the gospels weren't written until several decades after the death of Christ, which is true as far as we can tell. That seems to be scholarly consensus. And what happened in that time is that either the church had time to perpetuate a hoax or at the very least, one person said something to another and said something to another like a child's game of telephone. And so we end up with the story in the Gospels about the resurrection, but we all know that can't be true. I'd say that the time that elapsed between the death of Jesus and the writing down of the Gospels makes the claim of the Gospels more plausible, not less. Because the church had decades to get its story straight. If you were trying to perpetuate a hoax, why would you pick the most unreliable people and insist, no, in fact, these are the first eyewitnesses? I don't think you would. Early on the first day of the week, the women go to the tomb. That's what the scriptures insist. Now, there are slight discrepancies John says the first person was Mary Magdalene. Matthew says it's Mary and another woman. And Luke and Mark say, well, there's several women, as we've just read. Again, I would say that slight discrepancy makes the church's claim more plausible, not less. The church had decades to harmonize it, to smooth out all the rough edges, to say this is the story we want to tell the world. The only reason I can come up with why you would pick this story and insist upon it is because it's true. It's as if the church is saying to us, I know this claim is startling, but these are the breathless accounts of the eyewitness that, eyewitnesses that we ourselves have heard from, and we're going to write it down. I'd say the presence of the women in the gospel accounts of that first Easter Sunday is a signpost pointing us towards the plausibility of the resurrection. But there's more. We, we modern people... We think we're so advanced and so technologically superior. In some ways we are. I don't want to go back to pre-modern sewage and pre-modern dentistry, let me tell you. And if you ever had any doubts about our technological advancements, I'm going to put them to rest today. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I can here tell you that there has been invented the Doritos Locos Tacos at Taco Bell. It's amazing. It's a marvel of science. In a lab somewhere, somebody took something and made it into something and called it food. It's called Doritos. And then they took those Doritos and they formed it into a taco shell. As my dad would say, what will they think of next? It's a miracle of science to make it seem like it's food and taste the way it does. <laughs> if you ever wanted to prove that we're a very advanced society, I think the Doritos Locos Tacos proves it to you. You know, and we say, I hear the point about the women and about the gospel being written. That's nice circumstantial evidence. 
But one of the things we know is that dead people stay dead. We need to beware a certain kind of modern pride and arrogance if we think that it is only we enlightened modern people who knew that dead people stay dead. That fact is throughout all of the gospel accounts underneath the surface. In verse 1, early in the morning on the first day of the week, the women go to the tomb with the spices they had prepared. Why are they doing that? Because on Friday they had seen Jesus of Nazareth crucified and died. The Jewish Sabbath begins on sundown at Friday. There's not a whole lot of time to get the body ready for burial. The scriptures tell us they laid him in the first tomb they could find in which nobody else had been laid, cut into solid rock. So the whole day Saturday the the body lies there. The women go about their religious duties. Then Sunday morning early, as soon as they're able, they take the spices for the embalming and they go back to the tomb. Why? Because of course they expected the body to be there. Jesus was dead. Dead people stay dead. That's not a fact that's unique to modern knowledge. Further than that, once they see the empty tomb and hear the angelic witness, why are you looking for the living among the dead? They carried that startling news, can you imagine this, breathless to the eleven, that is the disciples minus Jesus and the other followers of the Lord. And this is what the scriptures tell us. Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. In the very pages of the New Testament we get witness to the fact that everybody knows that dead people stay dead. This is nothing new. It's always been the case. And I just say it again. For the church to make this startling claim, you could say, well, it's a hoax, it's a legend. We'll come to that in a second. For me, when I read it, I say, the church was faced with something that seemed impossible, and yet they knew it to be possible. Something that's astounding and startling, namely, that the one that they had seen crucified and put in the tomb was, in fact, raised from the dead through the power of God. The second signpost pointing along with the signpost of the female eyewitnesses, the second signpost pointing toward the plausibility of the resurrection, I'd say, is the fact that dead people stay dead. The scriptures know it, and yet they insist. But this time, it was different. The third and final signpost I want to point out to you today is not so much in these 12 verses as it is all around them. All the Gospels agree. The followers of Jesus fled at the moment of trial. When he's come, when the guards come for him and take him away and and mock him and humiliate him and beat him, the disciples scurry away. So that when he's lying there on the cross, all his friends have left him. He's all alone. Now Jesus was not the only person in the first century to claim to be God's Messiah. That is the hero that would save God's people. Around the birth of Jesus, there was a man named Judas the Galilean. He led an uprising against Rome. He was defeated. He was crucified. There was a man named Thutis who lived a few years after the death of Christ. Thutis raised a small army. He claimed that he could part the river Jordan the way that Moses could part the Red Sea. The Romans came, defeated his army, and beheaded him and took his head to Jerusalem on a stick as a warning to others. 
Both times that happened, their followers disbanded and scurried away like cockroaches into the darkness. One of the most startling things about the early church is that it existed at all. All the disciples of Jesus knew that dead people stay dead, and when they saw the guy that they had placed their trust in betrayed, humiliated, and crucified, they thought he surely isn't the Messiah. And yet, virtually all of those same people, Peter, James, Paul, Stephen, became leaders in the early church, and they were all themselves martyred to Rome because of their belief in Christ. Listen, people die all the time for wrong-headed, stupid ideas. We see it all over the place. But I find it hard to imagine people who started a movement dying for what they knew was a lie. Sometimes people say, you know, over time, the resurrection was a belief that grew up in the church as a way to justify their, behave, their, their beliefs and behaviors. The resurrection grew up in the church. On the contrary, the church grew up around the truth of the resurrection. How else can you explain that these men who, and women who fled in fear became the people shortly after the resurrection of Jesus who said, we're all in, whatever it takes, we're not going to quit. Everywhere in the Roman Empire and the stones of the streets came up like stubborn weeds, the message of the church, first in Jerusalem, and then it began to spread in Antioch, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, in Ephesus, in Thyatira, then over to Greece, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, and finally to Rome itself. Until in a few short years, the gospel overtook the pagan Roman Empire itself and brought it down to the ground. I'd say the most compelling signpost for the truth of the church's claim about Jesus is that the church exists at all. How do religions normally spread? Well, they spread in two ways. Through cultural conquest. There's a religion in one place. Traders take the language, the cultural values to another place. They set up shop and then it begins to spread like that. Or through military conquest. New invaders come in and say, you must worship this God. The early church was illegal. The message of the gospel is against the message of the empire. The early church was peaceful. People died for the message. And it was unstoppable. I think the most compelling reason to believe that the resurrection really happened is the behavior of the early church. Something went and changed that caused them to turn from absolute cowering fear to resolute, resolute courage in the truth of their message. And that something is the fact that Christ was risen from the dead. I've given a very brief overview. You can look in books and books and libraries and libraries about this topic, and I hope if you're interested, you will. But I believe the resurrection in Jesus is something in which it's not blind faith to put your trust in. Just like zipping into the zip line in Las Vegas, there are reasons to trust it. But unlike some zip line in Las Vegas, if you put your trust in the resurrection of Jesus, it has the power to change Everything about you. Let's look at these signposts again. One of the signposts is that we all know that dead people stay dead, and yet this is our claim. Are you here this morning caring about a heavy burden, a grief, mourning for a loved one from whom you've been separated? 
We already sang, where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? Because the resurrection proves that God has vindicated his servant Jesus and what Jesus said is true. No longer is death the final enemy of humanity because in Christ, death has been conquered. There's a song, it says, on Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, awoke with the keys of hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain. The man, Jesus Christ, laid death in the grave. That's what we're here to proclaim today. If you're here and separated from your loved one, I want to tell you that in the power of Jesus, we will be reunited with the dead that have gone before us. We may be living in like it's Saturday, a Saturday world. The death has come on Friday and we're still waiting for the Sunday. But the Apostle Paul says because the resurrection happened, it's like a down payment that proves what God is going to do. If you're here this morning caring about that kind of grief, be encouraged because of Christ's action Death has been laid in his own grave, and the power of God is vindicated. Another one of the signposts is the fear of those disciples before the resurrection and their courage afterwards. If you're somebody who puts your faith in Christ, fear goes away. Are you here this morning carrying something heavy, a serious burden of fear? The reason the early church was unstoppable was because they were fearless. The worst Caesar could do is take their body. But even God can raise up the bodies. Maybe you're here today and your situation is like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I read something and this really helped me thinking about Jesus in the final moments before he was captured. He's praying, he says, Father, if this could pass from me, would you please take it? Because he knows Only one faithful option is left open to him. All the other ways lead to unfaithfulness. There's only one way he can go, and that's right up to Golgotha, the place of death on the cross. Maybe you're here today, and you're faced with a hard decision at work, in your family, somewhere else, and you know there's one right action that God's calling you to, but you're afraid. Can I just encourage you? Don't be afraid, because God has raised Jesus from the dead, which means righteous actions will ultimately be vindicated. I'm not saying you're going to see it today or tomorrow, maybe not even this side of the grave, but one day things that are right, that are done for right, regardless of the persecution or otherwise you face, will be vindicated. You don't need to be afraid if your faith is in Christ because Jesus has been raised from the dead and fear has gone away. Maybe you're here today and and you're afraid because of the messes you yourself have made. You've made choices. Oh, gosh. They're killing you, killing the people around you. Maybe your fear is, what can God do with somebody like me? The resurrection means that if God can take the ugliness, the blood of Friday and turn it into the glory of Sunday, then he can take your life and your messes and redeem them for his glory. One of the things I really believe is that there is no life, no situation that's hopeless. If you're here today and wondering, I just want to tell you, you don't have to be afraid because God can forgive and redeem even you. Maybe you're here today and you're just afraid of these claims. You're a skeptic, you're a seeker, you're curious. We're not afraid of those questions around here because the truth of the gospel does not rest on our ability to make an argument for it. The truth of the gospel rests on the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. (laughs) If I can do anything in this place, I hope that this congregation is a place where people ask hard, honest questions. If you're a skeptic or a seeker, you are welcome here. Keep coming. Ask the difficult questions. We're not afraid of them. And don't you be afraid 
of following where they might lead either. There's a third signpost. I said it's not just that the church knows that dead people say dead and they insist on it. It's not just that the church was afraid and then had great courage. The first one I talked about was the fact that all the early eyewitnesses were women. The reason that's so startling, as I said, is in the first century, women were not credible eyewitnesses. Because in the first century, everybody knew that some people were more valuable than other people. The rich, not the poor. The physically able, not the disabled. The men, not the women, the slaves. uh, The free, not the slaves. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that that's a lie. This morning, at 6.45 a.m., my doorbell started ringing vigorously. Now, on Sunday mornings, I, I am just focused on the, that coming day and what I'm going to say in my sermon and praying that I won't say anything too stupid or irredeemable that God can't somehow fix later on. And so I'm, I'm focused, and I'm thinking, who is ringing my doorbell at 6.45 on all mornings, Easter? So I go downstairs and open the door, and there's a gentleman there. And he started telling me, he told me his name. He told me that he was a sous chef of a local place, and had some difficulty and he needed money. And something triggered my memory. And it was his accent. He had a strange, like a West Indian, Caribbean accent. And I remembered that that guy had come to my front door at another place I was living just a few blocks away five years ago on Easter Sunday morning and said the same thing. I'm thinking, buddy, (laughs) this ain't your lucky day. And for the first time, really, in my whole life, I've said I can't give you any money and known the person across from me was scamming me without any doubt. If he's not, that guy is the most unlucky person in the world that the same thing happened to him every Easter Sunday morning. So if that's the case, blessings on him. And maybe he's here today. And if that's the case, I'm glad I'd love to talk to you after the service. So I say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I close the door. I go upstairs to my wife and say, you're not going to believe what happened. Remember this? And I tell her. And I'm kind of half amazed at this coincidence and half just kind of ticked. I don't like when people lie to my face. Elaine hears me tell the story, and then she says, well, did you invite him to church? (sighs) (laughs) It's the most important day in the church's life. I'm the pastor. It's Easter Sunday. We proclaim a second chance in Christ, and all I can think about is myself. See, in the ancient world, and this lie still persists, We believe some people are more important than others, and usually we're the most important of all. And people who are criminals or who lie, the vulnerable, the elderly, we put price tags on people for what they can do to us. But the most famous verse in the whole scripture is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And the resurrection vindicates what Jesus said. He says, love your enemies, not just your friends. Bless those who persecute you. He said that little children matter. The resurrection proves that all people have value because God died for them. No longer do we divide between this and that. And that means the people who put their faith in the resurrection no longer are able to live their lives like that. I can't decide this person is annoying me on 645 on Sunday morning. I'm going to close the door on him, but I want to say hi to this person over here. All people are valuable in the sight of God. And what that means, if you're here this morning and this is your church home, this is what it means for us. It means that it's less important that we get people to agree with us. People aren't going to agree with all the church's teachings or claims about the resurrection, about money, about sex, about power, about miracles. 
It's less important that they agree than that we serve them and love them anyway, particularly the ones that are hardest to serve and to love, the ones who are farthest from God. The resurrection proves that the words of the Apostle Paul are true. In Christ, there is no longer any slave or free, Jew or Greek, male and female. All are one in Christ Jesus. A year from now, there will be people in our neighborhood who will not believe in what I'm saying next year, Easter Sunday. They're going to reject these claims utterly. But I'd hate them to reject the way that we love them. At least let them ridicule our claims. Don't let them ridicule our hypocritical attempts to love. To give all that we have for the people who are not at all like us. See, this idea of the resurrection was not some belief that grew up in the early church. The early church grew up around the resurrection. This congregation here is not some congregation in which the story of the resurrection has grown up. We're a congregation that has grown up around the truth of the resurrection. These signposts are pointing to a startling truth that changes everything. It means that no longer do we fear death. Death, where is your sting? He's been laid in the grave. No longer do we have fear itself because we know God can overcome any obstacle and all things done in Jesus' name will be redeemed. We no longer divide between this or that or this person or that person because we said Christ died for all and our job is to carry the message of the gospel to all of them. These things are signposts pointing to one startling truth and that is, hallelujah, Christ is risen from the dead. That's the truth that these signposts are pointing to. And our job is to follow where they lead. Friends, hallelujah, Christ is risen. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. May the power of the Holy Spirit bring that truth home to us today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.